What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode, we're going to be interviewing Barry Brown. Now, Barry's been editing for Spike Lee for quite a while, since, well, since the beginning, and because of that, he's got some great insight into Spike's approach to storytelling and approach to some of the ideas that Spike Lee implements into his films. So we sit down to discuss the work of Black Klansman, Spike Lee's latest film. Now, this episode is cut by Carly McKeating, and I want to send a congratulations out to Carly. Uh, She's been helping me for many, many months, and just recently she started an internship at Saints Editorial here in Toronto, and so we're all very excited for her career developing. So a big congratulations to Carly. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with Barry Brown. So you've been a longtime collaborator with Spike Lee. So I'm wondering, when you got the script for Black Klansman, what were your initial thoughts? Well, you know, Ken and Spike came onto the script after the script was initially written. I mean, I really thought that when I first read the initial script, that it really needed a lot of work. And then Ken and Spike came on, and they did a lot. They did a pretty big rewrite of the script. And I think that they just brought it to a place where it could really get shot and potentially have a very, very, very good movie. So I didn't really get excited until I read their rewrite. So I thought that maybe Spike wouldn't even do this movie initially because of our conversations about the original script. But obviously, he really saw what was there. And he also saw what he could do with it. You know, the film just kept jumping. You know, and this doesn't always happen, but that was a big jump in the rewrite. And then I saw almost immediately that there was a big jump during production when they were shooting it, which doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's, well, yeah, they're really capturing the script. But here, they, they, it, it just felt like they were, they were taking it to a whole new place. And then I think that we were able to do the same thing later, you know, in post. Every step along the way, it just took big jumps. That's really what you want anyway. Well, what do you think it was on set that made it sort of jump and make it better for you? I think it was the quality of the acting, quite frankly. Obviously, Spike is always going to bring stuff to it as really one of the best directors working in America today. So he's always going to bring something. But the quality of the acting across the board just took it to to this next level. You know, I mean, Adam Driver's great. And John David Washington's great. Everybody just stepped up. You know, you see what, like, Corey Hawkins did was playing Kwame Ture. Yeah. You know, Harry Belafonte coming in to play Jesse or, or Topher Grace doing, you know, this great David Duke. You know, all of this stuff just stepped it up. Well, one of the things that stood out for me, and you mentioned the Kwame moment, the Belafonte moment. Yeah. But with Spike Lee's films... The one thing that he does that makes me think that he stands out from most other filmmakers is that he makes you feel an emotion, whether it's anger, sadness, Ah. you know, whereas other films, it's just like, here's a big spectacle. It's something emotional. So I'm wondering, what were your conversations like with Spike around this film and figuring out how to guide the emotions of the audience in post? 
you know, we don't really have those kind of conversations. We don't really have a general conversation for sure. Like never, never, never. If anything, this kind of conversation is about how this moment or that moment is going to be perceived is much closer to, is this understandable? (laughs) Or is people understanding what he says? Or yeah, is this confusing? So there's not like a, there's like hardly ever a conversation about how an audience is going to perceive a moment. But for both of us, I think both of us kind of treat ourselves as an audience during the course of a post-production. How is this making us feel? You know, and then you're really hoping that an audience is going to feel something similar or the same. That doesn't always happen. And sometimes you do things where you think, well, this is clever, a clever moment that only confuses people. Um, there's actually a, sort of a, a moment like that in Black Landsman uh, where I think certain audiences are confused and certain audiences are not. There's a moment where Ron Stallworth in the police department gets his phone call and it's from Felix. And he says, get your ass over here, right? And then in order to step up the speed of that moment, in the midst of that conversation, I have Adam Driver getting out of a car and then walking down the hillside with Felix, right? But at first, when Adam gets out of the car, some audiences, as we discovered, think, uh-oh, this is happening at the same time. Shit, you know? Felix is going to find out that these are two different guys. I mean, quickly, that's, that's not, you know, people are hip to know it's, it's not happening at the same time because then you see Felix in the shop. But, you know, for, for Spike and I, we were so, we, know, we knew so much that this was a different time of Flip getting out of the car. We never thought somebody would perceive it's the same time and that everything is about to get exposed. So we had an audience who said, oh, <laughs> and we thought, Oh, shit. You know? uh-huh. Yes, you could take it that way. I see now. You, know? you don't always think that way until you have it in front of an audience. Because sometimes you're just so close to the material yeah. that you don't even consider it. If I'm not mistaken, you guys didn't have preview screenings because you were working to make can. We had not a single one. No, we didn't. Most filmmakers would be thankful because a lot of people find those frustrating. But were you worried because you didn't get that audience feedback? No, no, no. It wasn't a thing about we were worried. I think it was sort of a joy not to have one, quite frankly. But also, you know, Focus still had the right to force a preview screening. Mm-hmm. They had that right because it's in the contract, but they didn't. They didn't force it because they saw the film. And what they came back and said to us is, listen, this film is working. And they felt that so strongly that we don't need an audience to tell us this film's working. We're going to Cannes and we're finishing it up and first audience to see it's going to be the one at Cannes and that's exactly what happened. I think that very, very, very few studios, if any other studio would have ever done that, would have ever said, listen, we all feel strong. I think the last time we did a film that we didn't have a preview screening on was probably She's Gotta Have It, the very first film. And now I want to talk about the Kwame moment, the speech. Because there's this nice sort of balance between the intensity of what Kwame's saying and how he's saying it, like the forcefulness with which he's saying it, and the beauty of the portraits that you guys put in there. So I'm wondering how this scene came together. You know, what kind of issues did you have with pacing or timing, given the two differences between those? We found the timing of the speech by itself. I cut the speech by itself. This is the speech, and this is how it works with Flip and Jimmy. The cops outside in the car listening in. 
this is how it's going to work with how Ron Stallworth in the room, how this is affecting him. And that was the first cut. Let's just get the speech. Let's get it to the place where we really like it. And then Spike said, okay, now we're going to work with these portraits. Because he had shot these portraits in another room while doing the speech. He just grew, went through the audience there and would pick somebody and go off and shoot them in another room against Black. And every one of those portraits is an individual portrait. And then Spike one day said, okay, we're going to start putting these portraits. And he wanted to come in a little bit later in the speech. Than I thought we would bring it down sort of earlier, but there's a spot where he wanted it. Because this is where we're going to begin these things. Then a lot of that was up to me to figure out who goes where and what people to tie together and what movements to use. And my thought while I was doing this was, okay, I'll do this stuff. And it'll be sort of rough because I'm doing it just as an offline and avid. I mean, avid can give you a lot of ability to do many, many things, but, you know, it's still an offline system. You don't finish on an Avid. You take it to a place and do all this real finish work, as good as Avid is, and I love Avid, but that's not its role. But, you know, I did all of these moves, and I tied them together, and Spike would come in and say, yeah, that's great, that's great. Let's try this now. Let's try this. Let's try that. And I'd go off and try these other things that he wanted to do and try other things I wanted to do. And finally, we had all these portraits in. I mean, I knew he was really happy with the look of it, but not until, like, Randy Balsmeyer, who's really this great visual effects artist here in New York City, he works with everybody. He came in, and that's when I thought, okay, Randy will come in, and he'll have even better ideas of what to do with this. And, you know, Randy began to talk about things to do, and Spike said, no, 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 no. This is what I want. This is exactly how I want it. And I thought, wow, really, Spike? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So Randy's job is take this away, get the camera original scans, and clean it up, basically. Do all the stuff you do when you finish these compositions. And that's how it worked. I was shocked. You know, I'm not a visual effects artist. You didn't request a visual effects artist credit (laughs) afterwards? I would never. I would never, (laughs) never, 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 never. If I ever do, I hope somebody shows up and slaps me. <laughs> now, this speech, the Belafonte speech, there's these moments in this film where we're very focused on a key thing. The speech is very important with Belafonte and Kwame. Yeah. And some editors yeah. might see that yeah. as an issue with pacing. So how did you work with the film to make sure it worked? I don't think it's so much pacing. Definitely when I read the script and there was this long, long speech and the speech is, I think, almost eight minutes long. And even when I was cutting, I thought, guys, I don't think all of this is going to end up in the cut. It's eight minutes very early on in the story. It's being delivered by a character that is not going to come back. We're never going to see Kwame Ture again. And it has an effect on Ron Stallworth. We could probably get that effect a lot quicker with a shorter speech. But the speech was just working so well. And Corey Hawkins did such a great job. And also for Spike and I, because I was the editor of Malcolm X, and obviously Spike was the director, and it really took us back 25 years to Malcolm. And really, we both felt like, wow, we're back there. And that was a joy for both of us, and it was special for both of us. Finally, we just thought, man, this piece is simply working. And even though it doesn't really truly move the story forward, it just works so well and sets up something, some mood cuts up that moment where the black students are at that moment. 
we really understand how these people feel and where they are and what the issues are. And funny enough, some of these issues have not changed. People still have been shot down by white racist cops. So it was one of these rare moments where you shouldn't be able to get away with this, having this eight-minute-long speech 14 minutes into your movie, and that it'd be okay. And then later on, when we're in the Freedom House and Harry Palafonte tells that story of Waco, Texas, really the reason I think that works so well, besides Belafonte's great performance, is that we are able to still move the story along with intercutting that speech with the induction of the Klan members and trying to make those two things one, the Freedom House and the Klan induction, and trying to make that so much using lines. Belafonte is saying when he talks about he had to get someplace at the end of the trial so they wouldn't get him. So he said, I went up above the shoeshine parlor where I worked and looked out on a window. And there I had this great shot of Ron Stallworth walking through almost this attic space to a window where he's going to watch the induction. And so Ron Stallworth and Jesse, the character Harry explained, is becoming one. They're both in the same spot in a place that's hidden high up above and witnessing for Ron Stallworth the induction and for Jesse the murder of his friend. You know, then there's other places where I try and tie it more and more together. But, you know, you keep the rhythm going. You keep the emotion. And obviously the music, Terrence Blanchard's score, helps a great, great deal. And then, you know, we get, get towards the end of that. And Belafonte is talking about the initial success in 1915, Birth of a Nation. And you're seeing Birth of a Nation. You're seeing the reaction of Birth of a Nation by these Klan members. And Belafonte is basically talking about the same thing, about how well-received this film was at that moment in time. So it's constantly this thing of feeling, whenever it's possible, this is one story we're telling, rather than, hold up, hold up, hold up, where are we now? Yeah. Wait a second, we're back in the Freedom House? Now we're back in that conference place, that reception hall where they're having dinner with the fan. What? You know? But you never feel like that. You never, never feel like that. You always feel as if it's a dance more than it is anything. Yeah, I guess that's sort of what my thought is with the pacing because, you know, when I see these scenes, they're slower, but they add so much emotional impact. And just like a song or a dance, there's slower moments that show you something you're not expecting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I look at his films, it seems like he allows his films to evolve in post-production and be affected by what's happening in real life or by current events. So I'm wondering how current events affect your cutting process on this film. I mean, really, only only when it comes down to as I Charles still seeing at the end of the film. I mean, otherwise, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Certainly not in terms of pacing or how does this thing work. It's not like that. I mean, they say that, you know, all films are about the moment that you're making the film in. Even films are supposed to be from a different period of time. You're still making a movie about your own time. And I think that's kind of true. But for the Charlottesville stuff, which was not in the script, obviously that is truly where current events is present and at the forefront. Now, one of the things I've noticed about Spike is he's extremely passionate about his films. And I mean, like, he's willing to fight tooth and nail for his films. He's willing to make statements and go for it. And so, as an editor, that would worry me because I don't want the editing room to become 
a battleground. I want to work with him to get the story to work perfectly. So how did you work with him to make sure that you're on the same page, but still give your ideas without going against his vision? But I mean, one thing that drew Spack and I together very early on, because we've known each other a long, long time. I mean, we've known each other for 37 years. And, you know, we were young. And what drew us together to be friends and then to want to work together is a very similar feel about movies, but it's also a similar feel about politics. A similar thing of wanting to make movies that are entertaining, movies that are cinematic, but movies also that say something, that have something to say. And so in terms of that, I don't think that either one of us feel so much like they're so separate. I think we feel very much like it's all a combination, all the things we want to do. I have a film that is coming back out after a really, really long time. It was my very first film. I was a co-director on it. It was a film called The War at Home that has been restored to the better, actually, than it's probably ever been. Um, but it's a 4K restoration. It's going to be at the New York Film Festival, and, and then it's going to be released theatrically right after at the Metrograph here in New York. But then in Toronto, too. I, I'm not exactly sure where in Toronto it's going to play. But somewhere in October, in, in October it's going to play. But the reason I bring it up is that, you know, from the get-go, for me, making political statements with the films I'm working on, and even as a director, or as an editor, or as a writer, is what I want to do. It's what I want to do. Like my next film is a film I'm about to direct, a film called Son of the South, which is set in Alabama, and I'm from Alabama, set in 1961. It's about Bob Zellner, uh, a white Alabama guy, 22 years old, in 1961. And it's a story about how he was pulled into the center of the civil rights movement. He had to come a far way because uh, his family was a Klan family. His grandfather was deeply in the Klan in, in Birmingham. And it's a great, great story. And, and he became a very important part of the civil rights movement. But I also bring this up as, once again, you know, I really wanted to make this an entertaining movie. And I wanted to make it cinematic. But it definitely has a very strong message political message and social message. So for me as an editor sitting in the editing room, I just don't make so many distinctions about it. And I, I mean, and I want to deliver this stuff too. And I want to deliver Spike's vision. Well, being so political, everything that's going on in the States right now is shocking. Shocking! To say the least. Shocking! <laughs> to say oh the least. God. It's so shocking you can't keep up with it. Yeah, every day there's something new. Every day this guy has something. He does something every day. He's so outrageous that that he kind of makes the rest of the Republicans look sane. I guess what I was going to ask, I almost asked this of people just out of hope that I'll I'll get the answer that I want. But do you think things will change or that Mueller will eventually get him? Or (laughs) do you have hope, I guess, is what I'm wondering. You know, if you go back historically... And you see guys like this and guys who have become powerful based on hate or manipulation of hate. Because it's not all that they don't always hate themselves, but they understand that other people hate or are fearful. Like Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was a guy who he, he could not have cared less about, you know, communists in the State Department. He could not have cared less. Or George Wallace. I don't think he could have cared less about the race issue. 
are Richard Nixon and where he like went after Alger Hiss in order for political gain. None of these guys ended well. They don't end well. You don't end well. You end badly. So that's what I see over and over. I think Trump is going to be more like Joe McCarthy rather than Richard Nixon. And I think that, you know, these guys are grandstanders. They know how to grab the you know headlines. And certainly they have a core that follows them and think they're fantastic and wonderful. But somewhere along the line, they come up against somebody who is a great deal smarter than them and a person that entraps them. And a person that somewhere along the line, they cross they cross the line and you keep thinking Trump is, has already crossed it over and over. But there'll be something that the great majority of people will not forgive. And that will happen. Now, you know, one thing about Trump is that he's so transparent in his awfulness. You know, look at somebody like Mike Pence. I think Mike Pence is more of a player. I mean, both of them are quite dangerous. Both of them are undoing so much of the fabric of our society and going in such a wrong-headed direction where the rest of the world must think, what is the matter with these people in America? I mean, do they just not see the basic facts of, of life, of climate change, going to war with everybody in one way or the other? I mean, you know, the United States of America is one of the luckiest countries in the world. Incredible amount of resource but also an amazing amount of safety in which I think that the Republicans and Donald Trump have made the United States a very dangerous country, less and less and less safe all the time. How many countries in the world have two great friendly countries on their borders? How many? Mm -hmm. Almost none. And what you want is you want to secure these countries as much as possible. And these countries have got to be as healthy as possible. And, and hopefully as economically healthy as possible. And then we have two huge oceans. Well, we don't have two huge countries. We have two huge oceans. It's a virtually impossible country to attack. I mean, yes, you can send in missiles, but quite frankly, it's a death sentence for any country. It's like one of these crazy people who get guns and go in and they shoot up a nightclub or they shoot up a gaming event, you know, basically they may as well just shoot themselves because they're dead. They're dead as well. And any country that somehow decides, well, you know, I'm going to attack the United States. The United States is an insane country. It's crazy. It's like poking a bear, (laughs) right? Yeah. It is like poking a really, really big bear. What's a bear going to do? A bear is going to just go nuts. And if you poke the United States, the United States goes nuts. And it's not like this reasonable, rational, let's wait a second. Let's take a moment here and catch our breath. What is this? That's not what happens in the United States. The United States is, you did what? (laughs) (laughs) So you have this really powerful, really angry animal that is just seeing red. So for me, what's happening with the tensions between the United States and Canada and the United States and Mexico, this is stupidity beyond belief. This is just stupidity. And that you hear the conversation is about dairy, which I don't get. You know, come on, guys, really? This is about dairy? Wait a second. It's unfair because we can't sell our milk in Canada? 
wait a second, you know, what would, what would Americans say if another country came back and said, we're pissed off because we can't sell our milk in America? You know, Americans would say, go to hell, we don't want your milk, you know, yeah. right? Uh, it's just, this can't be about milk. This is just insane. I didn't mean to get off and go this long rambling answer, but my feeling is that all this stuff is just crazy. For me, I think we really should have a much more of an EU approach to Mexico and Canada. I think that we should have more of an EU approach to all of the Americas. I think that we should really think of all of these other countries to the south of us as being our neighbors. And, you know, the problem with immigration is these people are fleeing horrors. We should be working with these other countries to eliminate the horrors in those countries. Now, I have one last question just to bring it back to a lighter side. <laughs> and that's a question I ask all the editors I interview. And that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if I think there's ways in terms of guilty pleasure. I don't think I do. Because I watch everything. I mean, you know the kind of films that I've done over the years and oh, yeah. worked on over the years. But listen, I love action adventure stuff. I love Westerns. Oh, I love Westerns. It's just so good. Yeah. And I love animation. And the world of animation is, wow. I mean, people said the late 30s is the golden age of animation. I don't think it's true. I think it's the golden age of animation. We've been living in the golden age of animation. I mean, you see those films. God, all three of the Toy Stories and The Incredibles and Despicable Me. All three Despicable Me I like. I don't care that people say that the last one wasn't so good. I think the last one's great. But I'll tell you one film that I thought was brilliant that I get into arguments with people over. Gremlins 2. That's a brilliant film. Oh, yeah. It is. <laughs> it's a it misunderstood film, I think. Well, the people who love Gremlins, they didn't like Gremlins 2. But I think Gremlins 2 was a much better film. You know, and it's smarter and funnier and more clever. I know, maybe my guilty pleasure is Gremlins too. <laughs> That's the perfect one. I love that film. Oh, great, great, good. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you. Oh, you're welcome, you're welcome. Thank you. So that was my interview with Barry. I'd like to thank Barry for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Carly McKinney for helping me cut this episode. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.